as we wrap up our reading of the book of Job, I want to read you guys a quote by the theologian Lindsay Wilson, who wrote, The book of Job is best understood as a protest, not against Proverbs, but against the misunderstanding of Proverbs. In order to understand the role of the friends of Job, we must recognize that they have derived their ideas from Proverbs, but lost the flexibility and partial application of the original source. So um, another scholar suggests that we need to think about these books as individuals in conversation with each other, uh, kind of giving a fuller picture of the world, where you can see both the injustices and inequalities. What are you? What are you laughing about? I don't know. He was just all up in that Mike's business. Me or him? Him. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where I left off, but whatever. I I said the first thing that I wanted to say. No, that was good. Can I say the first thing I want to say? Yeah, jump right in, man. Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, week 37, reading through the Bible. We will be hitting on Job at the beginning, but we will also be going through all of Ecclesiastes, which is the best book in the Bible, so you'll want to stay tuned for that. Do you realize that this will be the 91st episode on the Resurrection Church Podcast? And what significance does 91 have? It means that we only need nine more to get to 100. Wow. I'm really glad you pointed it out right at this moment when we're nine away. Yeah, 91 plus nine equals 100. Right. No, that's good. Math. Yeah. That's the kind of math I can do. It's pretty simple. Yep. I hate math. Dude, wait, say that again, but say it in a way that it'll show up on the recording. I hate math. (laughs) Yes. Listen to those two ways of saying I hate math. Mm -hmm. when you record it. And the second one is what we need out of you every single week. Mm. Got it. We need you to bring your A-game lungs. Your AJ game lungs. Your AJ projection lungs. Finally tweaking the way I talk 37 weeks. weeks. (laughs) (laughs) He was inaudible for most of the year. And now... Wait, he's on the podcast. He's here. Yeah, there are actually three of us on the podcast every week. I thought it was Matthew, Aaron, and like a mouse that was wandering around in the room, (laughs) (laughs) making little comments here and there. So uh, Job 38, the Lord breaks his silence, and he throws down on Job. Aaron, what can we learn from that when God throws down on Job? Now, I I found it, uh, you know, obviously God's in the right. He's always in the right. And it's pretty cool, kind of encouraging, listening to God talk about all the great stuff he did, how he created everything, how his power is limitless. Uh, so he's like really spiking the ball on uh, on old Job and putting him in his place. But what what should we take away, at least initially? Well, I could be wrong, but I think that this is the longest monologue that we have from God in the entire Bible. I think that sounds plausible. I don't know if that's true, and I didn't look it up at all, but at least up until this point in the Christian arrangement of the Old Testament, we have not heard this long of a speech from God at any given time. Mm. And it's fitting for the poetic nature of the book and the kinds of speeches that all of the other figures have given as well. 
right? So they're taking a long time to say pretty much one thing, and now God is recorded in that same way. Uh, so it's fitting the poetical device. So we, I don't think we want to say God is overly spiking on Job here because it's so long and drawn out, which I know is not what you were saying, Matthew. Well, But someone might get that impression that, man, God is really berating Job here because he's just going on and on and on with rhetorical question after rhetorical question. And we have to compare that to the length of all of the other speeches, and it's not that much longer, I don't think. Right. I'm glad you said that because I was thinking that a little bit as I was reading through. I was like, I think I God... I think Job gets it. Like, that's enough. Yeah, but. I I thought the same thing. And I was like, man, this feels over the top. But I was like, I shouldn't say that about a divine monologue. So then I was thinking about the rest of the book, which also feels over the top. So it's really making a point. Um, but ultimately, I think he's rebuked Job. He's expressed anger at Job's friends for really misrepresenting the wisdom of God. And there's probably a lot for all of us to learn as we envision ourselves in every one of those roles, as someone who's suffering and feeling like God is silent, as someone who is speaking to people who are suffering and perhaps speaking the wrong truths to them, um, misrepresenting God and his ways in the world, even though we're speaking true words. So that misapplication of Proverbs kind of wisdom, for example, so probably a lot for us to take away here. Yeah. I mean, it might not be overkill. If it is, I think it's fine, but I kind of like to think about it that way. Is that wrong? Can I think about it that way for fun? I think you could think about it that way for sure. And definitely you'll take away the sense that Job is stopped in his tracks. Yeah. There's nothing left for him to say other than to acknowledge that he was in the wrong, which I thought Matthew kind of fit with your inclination as you're hearing Job's words for most of this time. Job eventually goes back and pretty much says, I recant everything that I said. I was being too whiny. I, w- I was making accusations without good grounds for them. Yeah, because the, I forget exactly where it is, but there is that small section where it's like Job repents. Yeah, like, chapter 42. Yeah, you don't repent if you don't do anything wrong. So Yeah, 42 verse 6. He says, therefore, I reject my words and am sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. And we should interpret this as the appropriate response to the word of the Lord. So I've, I think going into the book of Job, I'm glad that we all decided to be a little bit skeptical of every speaker because I've always heard Job spoken of as so positive. So then whenever I've been looking for an encouraging verse, I'm like, well, I'm not going to take any of the words of his friends, but whatever Job says is fair game. And that's not how you should be reading Job. You should be understanding this matrix of wisdom and its misapplication and and coming to the recognition that Job does that his words were not appropriate for his situation. Would it also be accurate to take away from it that you can be right in a wrong way? So that's kind of what Job was doing the whole time. Or wrong in a way that appears right. Because okay. he ultimately was wrong, even though he was saying right things for different situations. Okay. As is the case with all of his friends. So they were they were saying right things, but they were wrong. So they were still wrong, but they were saying right things. Okay. I think I meant the exact same thing you said, but I was envisioning it in my mind differently. 
Okay, yeah. Okay. Yep. I think we're saying the same yeah. thing. Yeah. So yeah, uh Job, you know, he gets the stern slap on the wrist from God, maybe slightly more than that. He repents. And right, were you were you going to point out that you finally figured out where Paul Perdue and Jolene got the name for their daughter Kezia? I did notice that like within the last couple of years. Yeah. Okay. Like a year or two ago I noticed that. And and then I was like why didn't they choose Karen Hapak? No, no. I, I I did think, well, it's obvious why they didn't choose any of the other two names. They what about Jemima? That's a common name. That's a syrup. Aunt Jemima's syrup, yeah. Yeah. And it's syrup, not syrup. It's syrup. No, it's <laughs> it's spelled S-Y-R, not S-U-R. As you are? As you wish. I wish for some syrup. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, no, but uh, that's a gutsy thing to name only one of your, to have two daughters and only name one of them as being described the most beautiful in all the land. What if their other daughter turns out ugly and the one that they named the beautiful name turns out beautiful? The other one's going to be like, you cursed me by not giving me the beautiful name. Yeah, Phoebe. yeah. What if she? What if she were to turn out just hideous, and the other one turns out beautiful, and it's like because of the names yeah, they chose. Yeah. Well, yeah. I wonder if they chose the names pre or post delivery. <laughs> no, this one's not kissing. <laughs> we'll try we'll, again. We'll save that one for the next. No, I don't know. Phoebe's prophecy. a great name too. Yeah, I, I mean, we came across that in Romans sixteen one, uh, the a deaconess in the church. So maybe their daughter will grow up to be a deaconess someday. All right, Aaron, uh, as we continue to look at Job 42, just, well, the end of Job, but I have a question about Job 42. I don't know if I'm grabbing at something that's not there or what. Hit me. All right, here. Um, Job's, well, God's kind of like not thrilled with Job's friends, and he, God's kind of like, I'm not going to listen to them or their prayers, something roughly like that. Um, and so he says to Job, like, you need to pray for them to me because I'll listen to you, but I'm not going to listen to them. It was something to that effect. Um, is there anything to be taken away from that as far as um, should we seek out people that are, um, you know, very righteous leaders in our life to specifically have them pray for us in certain times? Like, is there anything to that that we should take away? Or was this just kind of a standalone, um, just unique situation because Job's situation, you know, essentially was unique and all that? I think that's a really good question. I think we can cite text like James 5, where people are instructed to call the elders so that they can pray for them. So at least from there, we could say that there are situations where it would be commendable and wise to call upon somebody else to come and pray for you, perhaps especially to call upon those who you would identify as your spiritual leaders. Okay. No, that's helpful. That's kind of what I was thinking. I'm like, it seems good to have like your leaders pray for you or to seek that out in certain times or situations. So I just, yeah. I, I didn't know if I was grabbing it too much there or no. Well, and I don't know how much I would ground that in the book of Job, but there is maybe 
a related idea of allowing those who are spiritual to restore those who are erring, you know, falling into sin. That's another New Testament idea of, you know, that you who are spiritual restore such one. It's like Galatians, maybe. Um, but, but keep an eye on yourself so that you won't fall into the same temptation. Maybe that's illustrated a little bit here, but I, I wouldn't say you're far off. I'd just say we could also supplement it in other places within the new covenant context instead of relying on this situation where we're not actually sure what the covenantal context is. Um, this may be an Israelite. It may not be. We have no idea. So do you think it's priestly? could we say, in some function, like maybe not the order of Aaron, but some type of, you know, Matthew has pointed out before, there's similarities between Job and Christ, and this is one of those parallels that I've read where they refer to this as Job being a priest or interceding for others. Yeah, I I certainly think so. I mean, God tells them to offer sacrifices for themselves and then to ask Job to pray for them. And I think the interesting connection is that earlier Job told his friends, there's no mediator between me and God, but then God selects him to be a mediator between God and his friends. So there is that idea of Job being a mediator as well, and um, someone who has accepted the wisdom of God becoming the mediator, I think, finds fuller figuring in Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, who becomes our mediator. So there are probably a lot of fruitful lines of Christological reflection here. Anything else for Job? Um, He ends happily ever after, gets a bunch of children back, all of his animals, and then some, and he lives a good while. What did you think about that with God blessing him? It is interesting to me that in in verse 11, his family and former acquaintances sympathized with him and comforted him concerning all the adversity the Lord had brought on him. So even in the way the narrator is structuring things, it, the book starts with the adversary bringing all of this upon him, and it ends with attribution of the hardship to the Lord's activity. So that's an interesting, curious thing that I'm not sure what to think about, you know, it's giving us both angles on it. Um, But then also, I don't know that there's that much to learn in terms of, okay, how could we secure God's blessing? I, I think maybe the lesson would be live according to the wisdom of God, and you will position yourself to receive God's blessing. It doesn't guarantee the reception of right. God's blessing. And it urges us to live according to authentic wisdom, not the misappropriation of wisdom as Job's friends have done and as Job did throughout. It does seem like when we get into Ecclesiastes, there are some lines in there too where it seems like the author is saying that in general, people who are righteous will reap worldly benefits from that. You know, sometimes he will say that God took possessions from the the wicked and gave it to a righteous person or something. And I don't know, I was just trying to uh, maybe bridge those two. I think there could be a bridge there. It might be invisible right now, but then we might discover it. I don't know. Also, what you said, Aaron, I think is good. But then I maybe we should add, like you said, live as wisely as you can, and that's the best way to 
possibly secure God's blessing. Also, repent when you screw up. Exactly. Along the way. Yeah. You know. Which is part of living wisely, right? Yeah. It's okay. recognizing, perceiving, detecting your the error of your ways and repenting of it and positioning yourself back towards God. As we move to Ecclesiastes. This is this is your time to shine. Well, because this is your book. No. You're the Ecclesiastes scholar. Dude, dude, well, no, 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 no. I'm the Ecclesiastes fan. Dude, you've dived into Kohelet, and you have thrived there. See, I don't even know what you just said. That proves I could not be further from an expert on Ecclesiastes. I just like it a lot, and I've read through it many times because I find it very interesting, helpful and interesting. Yeah, I think Kohelet is the name, the Hebrew name for the book. Okay. And See, it I means something like to collect. So it's like the collection of wisdom. knowledge, wisdom, individuals who are going to learn. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, I got... and you've been collected, coheleted. Ooh. Well, I got my notes here. Tight. Well, why don't you lead <laughs> us in this discussion? On the and... back of a Home Depot. Yep. <laughs> I, I got my Home Depot gift card in the mail, and I'm like, I don't own paper, so I'm going to use this piece of paper. That's perfect. It's all vanity. That's yep. what you're going to say. Well, and is that the right uh, English translation of that term? I don't you know, know. That's a big question. Well, it sounds like you have a lot to say about this, Aaron. Why don't you lead us in, and we'll just chip in whenever we feel <laughs> fit. <laughs> Absolutely. I would just draw attention to the Reverend Philip Trock of Richfield Bible Church, who has a few sermons on this book, who renders the term hevel not as vanity or vapor, but as enigma of enigmas. I mean, I could see, yeah, okay. I could see that being applicable. I guess I could see both words being applicable. Yeah, I think vanities is a little bit pessimistic because vanity of vanities is like, oh, this is all in vain. This defies the expectations for life that I have from reading the book of Proverbs. Like things aren't as they should be. It's enigmatic. Uh, to get into Ecclesiastes, one of my first observations through the first several chapters, so he talks about, um, kind of opens up like, uh, there's not, everything's kind of meaningless is kind of what it seems like. Uh, there'll be no remembrance of former things, nor any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. So it's a little bit like everything's super pointless, kind of how it starts. Um, but then the first few chapters he goes through um, the vanity of self-indulgence, vanity of wise living. Uh, at some point, he's very foolish to see how that goes, uh, the vanity of toil. So he's exploring a lot of the, uh, I don't know what you would call it, areas of life or different facets of how you can live, apparently. And... Um, I guess just one big thought I had about that, it was just like, well, th this guy, which it's not clear that it's Solomon. I think a decent amount of people think it's Solomon, but there's a little question about that. But either way, um, I'm just going to assume it's Solomon because that's what I think. Uh, but anyways, um, you know, he does all these things kind of right, wrong, or indifferent uh, throughout all of them. And yet he's extremely wise, and I feel like probably through doing all that stuff is what helped him gain uh, a lot of his wisdom. So that's the first thing I was kind of thinking about is 
um, like actually getting out there and trying things and exploring things and being very inquisitive about life and engaging with life and making decisions and just being very action filled um, in life. And I think like essentially that's what he did and gained a ton of wisdom from it. And so I was just thinking about that a lot. I don't know how much to take away from it. I mean, obviously we're not going to tell everybody uh, you have a lot you could learn by finding a bunch of concubines like this guy did. Like uh, I'm not, you know, trying to be pro concubine for everybody, but you know, through his mistakes or through his sin, even uh, he learned a lot and gained wisdom and realized, well, this is, this isn't kind of what I thought it could be. I'm moving on from it. There's nothing for me here. Um, so I don't know, just to not shy away from experiences, I guess is what I took away from it. Cause if you view it correctly, you can always learn something and you can always grow from it. So hopefully that made sense. But it's like, he's doing stuff. He's looking, he's, he's a mover and a shaker. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's doing stuff and then he's learning from it. And I think that's, that's a key too, is you have to, uh, I don't know, have the right outlook or the right pr- perspective as you're doing things in order to learn from it and not just turn into a fool that keeps doing the same dumb thing over and over and over. Like, seems like he tried stuff and learned as he tried it and then just, you know, moved on from it kind of. So maybe we could say, don't waste your mistakes and your disappointments, Yeah, but lean into them and learn from them. Yeah, that's a, that's one, the best thing you can do in that situation, but also it's like, how else does anybody ever learn anything? Like we learn 99% of life's lessons by stubbing our toe in life or banging our knee on something by just making mistakes. Do you have a source for that stat, that 99%? Yes. Okay. It's at www.myownstats.com. Love it. Yeah. Uh, it's down right now for maintenance, so don't try to search it. <laughs> <laughs> I I think we should be wary of adopting a perspective that we should just go live life to the fullest. YOLO. You'll just, you know, who cares if you screw up parts of your life, you'll just figure it out and be better for it. Like, I don't think we want to say that. And right. I don't think that's what you're saying. Right. Um, but I think you're right. Uh, we should evaluate our experiences in this world and filter it through the wisdom of God and the wisdom that comes through the school of hard knocks, we might say, and try to know God better through it, know ourselves better, uh, face injustice and brokenness and problems in the world. We don't try to minimize them or hide them, uh, but we also try to learn from them. Right. Because I think even probably yourself, and I guess the the angle I was going at with this, like you said, it's not just go crazy and do stupid stuff and then magically learn from it. But, you know, even in your life where it's like, well, I have some options in front of me. It it seems good enough. Like it could go poorly and kind of blow up in my face, but I'll never know if I don't try it and just avoid it because it might go poorly, but it might actually go really well. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of situations like that in life where it's like, well then like go for it and do it. And it could either be, it's not just obviously foolish. Like it could be a wise decision, but sometimes you just don't know how things are going to go. So it's like in those situations, it's like, well, I'm going to go for it and see what happens. I could 
sink, I could float, I don't know. Yeah, you have to ask yourself, do you want your life to be better, to be worse, or to stay the same? Right. And if it stays the same, it's just getting worse. What's that? Is that from something? Office. There it is. Oh, I didn't. Michael says it to people. Oh, why don't I remember that? Because it's probably not that rememberable. It's from the Traveling Salesman episode with the... Wait, rememberable or memorable? Remember... Remember all? You, you said rememberable. <laughs> Wouldn't it be memorable? Probably. <laughs> Though I like rememberable. That I seems mean, more fitting. Yeah. It's not that easy to remember instead of it's not that easy to memorize. It's an enigma. Ooh. <laughs> Full circle. I don't think I use that right. AJ, <laughs> I don't know if you did or not because I don't know what enigma means still. I forget what Aaron said. Another thought I had about Ecclesiastes, um, there were a couple times where I thought of our boy Job that we just discussed. We have shout out Job, yeah, shout out Job from the two hundred three. I don't know what was the Uz area code two hundred three. Two hundred three. Okay, that's perfect. Um, we have Ecclesiastes five two and three. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And I was like, maybe maybe Job should have done that. Maybe that's part of his problem. Dude, those, were, those verses spoke to me um, all the way back in 2008. Go on. Well, AJ is using my Schofield Reference Bible, King James edition, that I had in high school. And he just pointed out that I had underlined those verses, the very voice verses that you drew attention to just now. Do you remember in what context you were underlining them? I don't, because I don't think I wrote any notes in the margin. You want me to make up a note? You wrote? <laughs> I was waiting for you to say, no, wait, actually, there is one here. Similarly, Ecclesiastes 10, 14 a fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? So a couple of those verses, I've just kind of thought of our boy Job and just kind of how, you know, he ran himself into a little bit of trouble running his mouth so much. And uh, the preacher, who's the author of Ecclesiastes, um, you know, he kind of kind of pointed something like that out. Yeah, I think you're right on. Job and his friends could have yeah. probably been helped by those reflections they should have not multiplied their words but divided and then subtracted them this is the math episode Ooh, i like it we hate math no math is important aj what are your what what more thoughts do you got feed feed me something here what do you got what are your thoughts ecclesiastes what hit you what stuck with you did you think anything uh i don't know how to make this a question what What's the role of, what does the role that death plays in the book of Ecclesiastes? Mm, I didn't think about that. It comes for everybody, right? whether you're rich or poor, wise or foolish. They all, whatever he says, go to the same place. I mean, there, I don't know. There is something there. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that specifically a lot, but I see what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I think he says a couple of times about how, you know, the stuff that you work for in life. You're just going to give that to someone, like someone else is going to inherit it or yeah. all your money is going to be gone. You can't take it with you sort of thing. Yeah. And so no, that's, that's where I was yeah. thinking about, you know, so death plays in a very important point, part in the point that he's making as far as like 
does that make life meaningless? Should we not work for anything? What is the what is the wisdom that we're supposed to be gaining? Okay, I like that. I see, I see what you're saying. I think that probably somewhat ties in with. Um, I don't know if it'd be my largest takeaway, but it it uh, it encompasses the most verses from Ecclesiastes um, of one thing that stuck out to me. Now, as kind of in general, at least the way I was reading through Ecclesiastes. Um, and again, I'm very far from an expert, but where it's kind of like, this is vanity, you know, the wise and the foolish, they, their end is all the same. They all end in death. Not that it's pessimistic necessarily, but it's like, it's a little bit of like hard truth or something. You're like, Oh, is everything meaningless? Like this is a little bit maybe of a drag. Um, but in every spot in Ecclesiastes where I feel like he gives like a ray of sunshine of something that is good or something, how you should view something or what, how you can enjoy something good. Um, it comes up several times in the book and it comes up first in two twenty four twenty five, where he says there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. And it, I mean, that same thing is kind of echoed in several other spots. Um, three, 12 and 13, five, 18 through 20. Like it's, it's almost the same thing um, where he says in, especially in 518, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth, possessions, and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God, for he will not much remember his days because... uh, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So something like that comes up several times. It's kind of like, I don't know, it seemed like the kind of ray of sunshine, like a takeaway to take. And I mean, I think there's something, I think there's something very good to that as I was thinking about it is like, it's very easy in life to, cause I mean, like I do this all the time to think, oh, I'm not where I want to be or I haven't achieved this thing that I want to achieve, but to like step back and look at today and look at the blessings that are in your life from God and just be like, this is where I'm at. This is what God has blessed me with. This is my lot in life. Let me just do everything I can to enjoy what is in my life today as much as possible. And I think I think it's just, it's so hard to do a balance because there's nothing wrong with wanting to achieve great things and grow and have a good life and build things. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you lose sight of being grateful and enjoying the day-to-day blessings that God gives you, then I think that's kind of like a big problem that I know that I would struggle with and maybe other people do too, where it's like, oh, I want to eventually get to this position or have my own business and build it and be this successful. Like there's nothing wrong with those things, but when they take away from current enjoyment of blessings. And I think that's where we get in the wrong. Yeah, I think you're hitting at the heart of Ecclesiastes and at what makes it one of my favorite books, because it shows us that 
life does really suck sometimes, and we don't need to ignore that or pretend that hardship doesn't exist. But at the same time, because we know that God is the giver of all good gifts, we can enjoy those things more than the most successful person in the world. So even in whatever lack of success you might find or any disappointments that you come to, because you know God is the one who supplies all of those other things that can give you some measure of joy, you can enjoy them more deeply than people who haven't faced the same hardships you have. Uh, So I think that's a really important thing for us to think about. These things that disappoint us can't actually give us joy. God is the one who gives us joy, um, even through little simple things. So I really appreciate the writing of a guy named Greg Goswell who says, God may give joy and pleasure, but humans can never achieve it for themselves, however hard they try. The implied ethic is to enjoy life, but to do so in the right way, not trying to squeeze from possessions and pleasures what they cannot give, namely ultimate significance and security. These must be found in God. People should trust and obey God, whether life is long or short, enjoying what he gives them as his kind gifts. And I think that's so helpful as we navigate life. Uh, There are hardships, but we can truly find joy in so much because it comes from God. Yeah, and um, one thing that really stuck out to me in 5 verse 19, where it says, uh, to everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. That stuck out to me because like how many people have great wealth and great possessions, but they don't have the power to enjoy it. They're miserable because their perspective is off, whether their whole hope and faith is in their wealth and possessions, but then they find that they're miserable and then they don't know why they're miserable. Um, That just stuck out to me that like, it is actually a literal gift from God to be able to enjoy just anything and everything that's in your life. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think joy is a huge apologetic for the reality of God. So if you recall, when we read through Acts, Paul to people, even the joy that you have in your heart testifies to this God. And a lot of people who don't know God then get glimpses of this joy, but they can't fully walk into it. They can't enter into that joy because they don't know the God who gives us the power to really have joy. Just a quick side note is that um, you could read about this idea more in C.S. Lewis's book called Surprised by Joy, where he essentially recounts his life and um, conversion to Christianity, where he learns that God redeems people and provides them joy. Yeah, and it it could be missed because, again, chapters and verses get put in the Bible, and sometimes we can separate something that actually should go together. Because looking at the very start of chapter 6, it says, um, A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. Kind of like you referenced, AJ, when you have all these things and you just die and then a stranger enjoys them. But Yeah, so we probably riffed off that verse in a way that it wasn't intended to communicate. Because he's making the point that, the point that AJ made earlier, which is you're going to die 
and someone else is going to enjoy the fruit of your labor instead of you. I think it's kind of both there, though, because he still does not have the power to enjoy them. But then when he dies, somebody else does enjoy them. Yeah. So this is the way the CSB renders that. God gives a person riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself. But God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening, sickening tragedy. So he's essentially saying that this person is going to die. I mean, that could be. Moving on to just after that verse 3, though, this would be um, where he has great things and just does not enjoy them. It Mm -hmm. says, if a man fathers a hundred children, lives many years so that the days uh, of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Yep, there it is. Yeah, and that that does relate to what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah, right on. Just living, having, you know, great blessing and just not having the gift from God to just literally be able to enjoy it. Yeah, though I'd just say, I think if any of us end up having a hundred children, we might not have a lot of joy either. I feel like that would be a really hard life to live, trying to raise a hundred kiddos. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, I think that kind of gets back into our discussion we had several months ago about how uh, God is pro- you know, polygamy or whatever we talked about with, okay. with David. I think you maybe <laughs> asserted that God is pro-polygamy, but I want to be quite clear that on this podcast, we don't believe that God is pro-polygamy. Okay, I don't actually think that. I just like riling people up sometimes. Yeah. But there's no other way to get 100 children, so I'm not endorsing it, but, you know, one woman can't do that. That is correct. Yeah, okay, that is correct. AJ, do you agree with that? One woman, hundred children, not happening. A lot of triplets or something. Wait, that would still be we'd, we'd, like this thirty-three <laughs> I was plus say, one single child <laughs> later. I was gonna say you're making us do math, and we're the <laughs> oh, hate no. math. Podcast. It is the math episode. Yeah, but it's more the hate math episode. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, maybe for an orc that would be possible, but I think they're all birthed from within the earth. So who knows? Is that from Harry Potter? I don't like Harry Potter. I don't know it. It's from the Lord of the Rings. Come on. <laughs> also something I don't like or know. Apparently. <laughs> well, all your references like that are Harry Potter references. What am I supposed to think? What house were the orcs in? <laughs> <laughs> the were house of from, Sauron. Were they from Smitherin? Saruman. Smitherin? Well, those were Urukai. Oh, yeah. The orcs were from Morgoth. Okay, yeah, you're right. It's a little bit of like dark magic. I'm not really sure if we know exactly how those were created. Now, were they part of the Empire, part of the dark side? That struck back. Okay. Yeah. But there will be the return of the Jedi King. Ooh. What's his name? Aslan? (laughs) (laughs) This is painful. (laughs) Anyways, back to Ecclesiastes. This applies to everybody. It didn't make me think specifically of Job, but 7.14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So, you know, that puts it in its place where it's like, well, everything comes from God or is allowed by God, and similar to Job, sometimes we really, really don't like the adversity. So, I don't know. I was thinking about that. What do you you think about that, AJ? I don't know. You got me thinking about you know, kind of how we were talking about Job, like some of this stuff sounds like it's good. You know, what's the real point? So I was kind of 
maybe skeptical because we just read Job and life is meaningless, which is a you know the way that I remember hearing about this book has made me kind of question some of it. But but you know we've already kind of talked. Yeah, but I think that's the problem with the tr- translation of vanity because someone could read the book and think the message of Ecclesiastes is that life is meaningless. When in reality, I think the message of Ecclesiastes is life is really meaningful, even though a lot of really cruddy things are going to happen to you and it will feel meaningless. I like that. That's my six-word summary. Uh, We'll have to review the tape. I think that was more than six words. Yeah. Well, we don't have instant replay. I'll throw the challenge flag. Yeah, my final thoughts on Ecclesiastes are just that the ending is something that I feel quite regularly. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. You know, as a man of the cloth, reading books about the Bible, reading the Bible, sometimes it can be really just tiring. And then he gives the conclusion, when you've heard everything, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commandments. That's that's the thing we got to do. Fear God, keep His commandments. Um, yeah, that's it. I did. That's th- all she wrote. I did. All he wrote. Sorry. I did think of you uh, when it said, "Much study is a weariness of the flesh." I I just wondered if you if that resonated with you. It did indeed. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, the book ends how it ends, like you said. Um, where, what verse is it? Oh, where it says, um, the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, which obviously is true. And it's like that's when I had, didn't really know much about Ecclesiastes, but kind of like briefly looked into it. It's kind of like, yeah, 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 you don't really need to read it. The whole point of it is fear God and keep his commandments. It's like, well, that's not like that's not helpful. Like digging through all the chapters in you know seeing the details and seeing the things presented um i think are extremely helpful so at least for me i had like a bad initially like many years ago a bad outlook on it was like eh, it's all just like whatever just fear god and keep his commandments but that's not helpful yeah and it's not how literature or meaning works so i think sometimes we just want a quick summary statement and we hear a summary statement like that so we don't read the whole thing and then we miss out on the transformation that happens because we've gone through the whole journey. So it's kind of like if we're talking about a movie and we just say, here's my five-sentence summary of the movie, but then you miss the two and a half hours where you feel different things and think different things and respond and you're changed because of that time. Well, summaries can't do that for us. We need to go through this extended journey and, and maybe that's a little bit of the parable that he's giving us of his own extended journey through life and the transformation that happens in the actual knowing, not just the intellectual knowing that comes through those journeys. Guys, I just got an email from Paul Perdue <laughs> rebuking us for making fun of his kids' names. As we transition to the New Testament, finishing 1 Corinthians, uh, just want to put a note out there. We won't be getting into 2 Corinthians just because uh, we were fearful that it might be a lot of discussion about the Old Testament, and we didn't want to cut any of it out. So we will get into 2 Corinthians next week.
Or as British theologians and Donald Trump say, two Corinthians. Did he say that? Yep. I think about that a lot. Everybody made fun of him. But he was right. I mean, his mom was like Swedish or... Yeah, I think European theologians all say two. Like they say the ordinal instead of the cardinal. Is that the right identification of numbers? Um, We've got technology in the studio though that sounds close to math because it involves numbers but i don't think we were doing anything more with them but i don't know okay yeah so ordinal number is first cardinal number is one so you have it so first second third is the american way we use ordinal numbers but then european scholars do cardinal numbers so one corinthians two corinthians one john two john three john so if you had been speaking in Europe, it would have been more appropriate. As First Corinthians closes, it's a very significant part of the book. Aaron, why don't you help us dive into the significance of it? I would just point you to my sermons on First Corinthians 14 and 15 just on our church the, website. Plug in those sermons. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this <laughs> 37th episode of the Resurrection Church Podcast. AJ, what did you want to talk about from the end of 1 Corinthians? The resurrection. 1 Corinthians. Yeah. Thank one, you, one Don. Corinthians. China. <laughs> <laughs> I think you would be good as a like Bible radio talk show host. Sign me up, baby. I don't know. Where is that? They do you do you know of an opening? Do you see do you see one? I think that will be our next ministry is our radio ministry of Resurrection Church. We just need to get a giant radio antenna tower and we can just start broadcasting Dude, our own. We channel. have a flat roof, so we could just build one on there. That's it's pretty easy, probably. Probably. I mean, I'm sure we'd have to talk to the government about getting a radio channel. No, no, no. You don't want to talk to the government. They're all bad. Okay. Just like math. All bad. We also could just podcast regularly and call it radio. Anyways, getting back to 1 Corinthians, AJ. Doesn't it kind of go off of what we were talking about in Ecclesiastes, how... Some people might say that life is meaningless, but you know we have the hope of the resurrection. So there is, you know, adding that to what we talked about before about what we do in life mattering for eternity. I think there's hope there, and there's hope there, hope here, hope everywhere. The only other thing I was going to say was in chapter sixteen. Oh, where, here we go. Okay, where there's this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. It just kind of reminds us that. You know, the church of Jesus Christ is more than just resurrection church and that, you know, we should be concerned about other Christians and other places that, and, you know, we are concerned with Christians and other churches. We pray for them and we support missionaries and we even have a missionary in residence for a year, Mel and Rachel Hennigan and... They're looking to plant a church in Guam. So I was just thinking about those topics when I when I read that. I think those are great observations. And if any of our listeners are looking to move to Guam, 
to be part of a church plant core team, um, let us know. We'd be happy to connect you to Melcher Hennigan. There are some really important things that he says in 1 Corinthians 15. For example, if Christ died to give us hope in this life only, we're the most pitiable of people. You know, if there's no resurrection, then this whole thing's been a sham. If Christ hasn't been raised and we're not going to be raised, then Christianity is done. You know, so I think that's a huge game changer in the way that we think about what it means to be a Christian and where our hope is found. You know, I think it changes the kind of Christianity or at least the emphasis that we have in our Christian faith. I grew up in a world that said your greatest hope is that when you die, if you were to die tonight, you'll go to heaven. But Paul doesn't say that's our greatest hope. Our greatest hope is in the resurrection and the restoration of all things, where we'll be living in the new creation in our resurrected bodies. Like these sorts of things, I think, are really important for shaping our theological imagination and even more so for the way that we live in this life now. Because he goes on to say that because the resurrection is true, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So what you do in this life actually matters. So instead of adopting a way of being a Christian that says, I think this world is going to explode and I'm going to heaven when I die and nothing's ever going to matter. Like, you know, so I can be accused of being so heavenly minded that I'm no earthly good. Paul would have none of that. He'd say to be heavenly minded truly would be to be resurrection minded, which means that you work even harder in this life because what you do actually matters. And and I just think this this chapter changed my view of Christianity when I preached through it in, I think, 2019. And I, I just would suggest that it would be well worth further reflection. So I would point you to another book, this one by N.T. Wright, called Surprised by Hope. Um, clearly playing off the title of Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy, which we conveniently had an opportunity to reference earlier in the podcast. Um, but there, Wright talks about the resurrection and the hope that we have because of it, both in this life and in the the life to come. This is why Easter is my favorite holiday. Ooh. Resurrection Sunday. This is why I could really get behind the name Resurrection Church, even though it wasn't the first name that I wanted us to be. But you're still not down with doing a big, well, we don't have the people for it, but for doing a really big rendition of Because He Lives, you're still not good with that song. I don't like that song. (sighs) Because I think it's silly. What? And overly tying the reality of Christ's physical resurrection and the hope of our future resurrection to someone's experience of a good feeling. Mm. So they say, you ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. Well, that's not the resurrection that we're celebrating. We're celebrating a resurrection of Jesus from the grave in a physical resurrection that raises us up from our death in our sins and promises us a future bodily resurrection. I mean, I get your point. I just think it's kind of a banger of a song. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to yuck on your yum. (laughs) I don't want to rain on your parade. If that floats your boat, if that sinks your bobber, if that does it for you, it blows I'm my happy hair for back. you. <laughs> Haven't heard that one. No. 
Yeah, I, I'm fine with people singing that song. I just hope that we'll never sing it at Resurrection. <laughs> no. What's that guy? Something Jensen. He had that sweet version with the saxophone I showed you. Oh, you did show me that. I always forget his name. It's Jensen somebody. What's his name? I can't remember. Yeah, so I, you know how I like sometimes comment that we do things at our church that I don't really like or maybe am not comfortable with or just don't enjoy? If ever we sing this song, you'll know... <laughs> That this is one of those things. What's his, what's his name? Jensen. But in the same way that I really hate the song Grace, Grace, God's Grace, Grace. That is, like, I, I really don't like that song. I know Josh loves it. So when we sang it on Sunday, my first thought was, Josh Josh loves this. Mm-hmm. So if we ever sing the He Lives song, hopefully my first thought won't be I hate this, but I know Matthew loves this. Right. I hope that's what my response will be. That's what I'm trying to get my response to be whenever we do something I don't like at our church, that my first thought isn't, I don't like this, but I can think about the people who love it. I've had that. I've had that thought before too, where it's like, not everything has to be for me. If other people like this or are blessed by it, then I can just kind of endure it and let them enjoy it. Yeah. You can get behind it because you're, rejoicing with the people who are rejoicing in that moment jensen franklin that's the Mm. guy's name our boy yeah now the the saxophone solo comes in here it's a banger of a solo how many saxophones are playing? Uh, I think it's just Jensen. Okay. He's, he sings, but then he bails and he goes to the sax. Oh, there it is. I'd never see you hand raise, but you just popped Dude, it up there. I would hand raise to this song. I'd all hand right. raise all day. In that case, I think we should sing it. Dude, I, it's, Dude. So, it's so epic. And you're raising the Hebrew tattoo arm. <laughs> right. You are like, dude, you are the perfect candidate uh, no, for no, no, like no. every photo at a hipster church ever. I'm going to wear long sleeves. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can go to resurrectionmn.org.